Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome in once again to the QB11 show. I am your host, Doug Scott, joined, of course, as always, by Andrew, QB11. We got a new OC. We do, and I'm, I'm actually really excited about the hire and to kind of talk about it a little bit. Yeah, so on this episode, we're going to first talk about the OC hire, then we're going to hit some of the portal news that's starting to break. The portal has opened today, and so it's fast and furious in there, uh, not just for Oregon, but everywhere. And then uh, we'll cover, of course, cover our picks from the championship game weekend, kind of talk about those games a little bit, and then, you know, kind of just do a really, really early touch on the Pac-12 and bowl lineup, as well as the the New York Six games. Obviously, we'll cover all of those bowl games in much uh, more depth as they they approach throughout the next month, but uh, we'll touch on them a little bit at the end of this episode. But let's just dig right into this. So... Oregon has hired Will Stein, or is rumored to be hiring. I think it's not official yet, but by all accounts. I mean, if Thamble, Feldman, and everyone's reporting it, it's done. Yeah. And and actually, I'm pretty sure James got confirmation from the university. So Will Stein, uh, who's the current co-offensive coordinator and play caller at University of Texas San Antonio Roadrunners. He's been there for three years, uh, the first two as a wide receivers coach and passing game coordinator. Um, under the, uh, the previous offensive, offensive coordinator, Lenny, who's now at Illinois. Uh, so he he really helped build and install that offense three years ago, and it's been pretty prolific over the last three years at UTSA. They won the Conference USA this year as well as last year. Uh, I, I tweeted out some stats earlier on this, but they are, they're basically top 10 in almost every offensive metric that you would want. Uh, they're 12th in points per game. 10th in drive efficiency, 10th in TD rate, 8th in value drive rate, 4th in first down rate, 4th in busted drive rate, 9th in points per drive, 8th in available yards. So, you know, substantial uh, production there on offense. And QB, you know, give us your initial thoughts on Will and, and how you think this hire lands for Oregon. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the first thing that this kind of confirms is what I think we already could safely assume, but I think this is just another data point in that. Um, and like we, when you hire a defensive head coach, that the questions are is, like, is it going to be like a Jimmy Lake situation where he wants to run this offense that's really more to enhance his defense's effectiveness, or is he a progressively minded offensive coach that kind of understands like the state of the game, the way that the rules are set up, and where football is going and. Uh, this this coordinator hire, in my opinion, piggybacks off of and builds off of what was started with Kenny Dillingham a year ago, and and just kind of lends itself to proving that um, landing is is in a very is an aggressive and um, dynamic coach from the from an offensive stand, sense. Like he wants to have an explosive offense, he wants to be balanced and multiple, he wants to control tempo, um, and be multi dimensional. So, yeah, I think. Uh, Really, really, really impressive hire. I, this isn't a name. I mean, this is always the case, right? Like, this isn't a name that we knew a lot about um, before we found out uh, 
but after doing some initial research, uh, digging through some, some clinic tapes, um, watching about half of their games so far from this last year, uh, I'm, I'm really impressed with, with the move. A lot of it just seems to be a continuation and building a, a, upon the concepts that already exist in the Oregon offense, um, while also adding some new wrinkles. Um, but really, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of philosophic um, continuity with this hire. Yeah, you know, I think it's, it seems a, they probably favor the pass a little more than the run. You know, I guess it would be maybe the biggest change from this current season. Not, I mean, they're still balanced, right? They average about 180 yards on the ground, about 308 through the air. Um, still very balanced, but maybe a little bit more lean to the pass, a little bit less lean to the run like we saw this year. Some of that could be personnel related, uh, you know, as it was at Oregon. But I think that kind of leans into something you and I have been talking about on this podcast going into next season is that the team might need to transition to be a little bit more pass friendly. I think they were about 54% run this year and maybe closer to 50-50 next year might be where Oregon needs to go to, to be maximum efficiency. Uh, they actually ran a little more there than the pass overall, but you know, 3,800 yards passing. Uh, they had 2,000 yard receivers. Another guy who caught 50 balls. So their their passing attack definitely seems a little more uh, a little more dynamic than what we've seen of late at Oregon. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, again, I, I posted a, a short clip on Twitter, which was kind of a it was like a one minute intro to uh, Will Stein from a clinic that he did this past off season, um, but. They, they're gonna they're gonna call the offense to fit what the personnel does best um, but they are also going to be much more aggressive I think understand of feeding the top guys feeding the top dog touches I mean I think um, just based on some preliminary um, studies I've done on on the offense and the system that they that he's going to be bringing with him um, like players like Troy Franklin I think are gonna have a major uptick in volume of of targets. Uh, I just the, the way that the, the system is called, the way that they isolate their their top guys. I mean, they obviously having two one thousand yard receivers, two seven hundred yard backs, and a six hundred yard rushing quarterback uh, who also threw for thirty nine hundred yards. I think kind of kind of tells the story, right? Um, but yeah, o- overall, uh, I think that based on the talent that Oregon has, the the talent that they're acquiring through the prep class that's about to be incoming. Uh, and then also the ability to go out into the portal and, and make some some plays on some players to enhance the offense. I think that they're going to still be balanced, but I think that with a veteran quarterback, hopefully, and Nick's returning, assuming that that's what happens, um, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to lean on a veteran presence at quarterback and receiver uh, and, and push the ball vertically more often. Yeah, I think something you pointed out to me earlier was he, his comment about you know, wanting to take – you know, a couple of shot plays a quarter kind of thing. And, and I think that's, that, that's exciting to hear, obviously, for as a receiver or as a fan. Um, you know, you, you got to balance that with, with making sure you're keeping your drive sustained and going down and scoring points. But, you know, shot plays are very effective, right? If you have a quarterback who's accurate and can, and can get the ball there and you have receivers who can win their one-on-one matchups, it's a play where you're either going to you're going to make a big play catch and you're going to or you're going to get a penalty perhaps something good is usually going to happen in one of those plays and we saw we saw a lot of effectiveness out of those type of plays every year in college football but even in our own conference this year you know there was teams that that utilized shot plays a lot more than Oregon did with with a high level of success so yeah I mean Oregon especially earlier on in the year I don't think was really trying to show too much in that sense. 
as the year went on and the offense evolved, I think there was certainly a greater uh, emphasis on taking plays vertical. But yeah, I mean, uh, Stein said like within the first minute of, of his talk is we're, we want to take a minimum of two two shots a quarter. Like that's baseline. Like the 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 goal is to generate explosive plays, um, but that is not at the expense of emphasizing that they want to have a really physical run game. And I, I think that that is always going to be a staple of of this Oregon team, both offensive and defensively. As long as Dan Lanning is the head coach, like there's going to be a big emphasis on building a physical, a really really physical football team. Um, and I think that Oregon did was okay in that sense this year. I think they were somewhat physical, but I think that that's an area that we're going to see enhance um, as the, as this culture takes hold and they bring in their guys. Uh, but I, I think it's important to note, like this is not going to be a move to like an air raid offense. They're still, they're still going to grind the ball out on the ground. We have really talented backs returning. We have really talented backs incoming um, and it's going to be a balanced offense. And they're going to, they're going to be really diverse in terms of um, personnel personnel usage packages formation um and motion and they're gonna they're gonna be a multi-tempo team like this is not this is not like a flat out blur offense this is not a slow paced uh pro pro style system where they're huddling they're gonna mix tempos um and they're gonna keep teams off balance and i think that that really is more of a continuation of what oregon was already doing this year under dillingham uh, but I do think that there's some unique things that that Stein's going to be bringing to the table, some new concepts that maybe we didn't see this year, um, and some additional wrinkles that I think could enhance the system. Yeah, I mean, it definitely fits the mold of of what we've seen out of Coach uh, Coach Landing, right? You know, young, dynamic play caller, you know, kind of an offensive mind, innovative, um, you know, new wave offense, whatever you want to call it, right? That kind of new era of college football offenses that we've kind of been in now for a few years and, and will continue to be in. So it's um, it's it's similar in a lot of ways to the Kenny Dillingham hire last year. And, and I know there'll be people who are probably skeptical of this one. And, and you know, Will Stein has, has a relatively short resume. He's only 33 years old. Um, and so I think there'll be a lot of people who are skeptical, like there was a lot of people skeptical last year. Um, and look how that turned out. I mean, we had a top five offense in the country under Dillingham, and he, he parlayed that into a, a head coaching job at a power five school at his alma mater. So I, I think the fact that we didn't hear really any leaks of, of names you know, outside of you know the Joe Brady stuff that was going on, we didn't hear any real leaks. We, you know, people put together lists. You know, here's some potential candidates, but we never heard anybody say Oregon's talking to this guy. Oregon's zeroing in on that guy. So the fact that of that tells me this is a guy that was probably on Dan's short list from the start, um, and they kept it very tight in house, and and clearly somebody that Landing um, was very high on from early on in the process. And I don't, I don't know if it where he was out on his list. Maybe he was number one. I don't know, but he got him and he got a guy that I think he's very excited to have. And, and as he said in his press conference yesterday, there was a ton of interest in this job. So I have no reason uh, to doubt that as well. And uh, I think it's a, it, it's a good move from Oregon from a continuity perspective. It's not going to require massive personnel overhauls, massive scheme terminology overhauls. I'm sure there'll be, you know, changes and wrinkles and everything that gets put into place. But you know, it's going to fit what Oregon does really well. It's going to fit what Oregon wants to do really well. And, and, you know, he's a guy you could, you would hope would be here, you know, for a few years to, to get the system in place, build some continuity. And if that point he's ready to take a head coaching job, then great. It's, it, that means it's been a home run. Um, 
So I, I'm, I think this is a great hire by, by Coach Landing, and there's no reason not to trust his hiring. It's been, uh, it's been pretty impeccable so far. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think one of the benefits to having a coach that's extremely X's and O's inclined um, is that like, when he's hiring an offensive coordinator, he's really going to be able to go put them through the paces right? Like he's going to be able to make in really informed decisions um, because of his own understanding of scheme. I mean, f- football is a young man's game now. Like people, people are looking at these young coaches, whether it's at the NFL level with guys like Shanahan and McVay and LaFleur and now uh, D- uh, Daniel, there's our Daniels at, uh, uh, in Miami uh, to the college game now where you have guys like Lincoln Riley and guys like Dan Lanning and, um, I, I think that a lot of people get caught up in like, oh, he's got a short resume in terms of experience or um, he's, 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 he's only 33 years old. Well, yeah. I mean, football, I don't know. I think that, I think that football is changing in a lot of ways where we're getting away from this old guard of established systems and rules um, and moving towards like the really bright and innovative coaches. And I think that Will Stein from everything that we've heard um, really kind of encapsulates that and fix with fits with the general archetype of, of coaches that Dan Lanning likes to surround himself with. Um, so that's, that's why I have a lot of confidence in this hire. Not only does he have an exceptional resume, I mean, the, the advanced statistics like that you pointed out earlier in, in the podcast on his offenses from UTSA are unbelievable, especially when you consider CUSA, when he's playing in the CUSA, they play, they usually play at least two, sometimes three power five teams a year to be in the top 10 in almost every efficiency metric offensively while playing a tough schedule at a lower level level school where they have pretty much a middling offensive line. Um, that's not easy to do that. That requires really, really sound scheme um, and, and good offense and, and, and actually some really good recruiting too. I mean, he was responsible for the receivers for two years and I'll say this, they they've got at least two receivers that could play for us right now at, at UTSA. Um, and you never know, maybe Oregon, you'll see one of those guys end up at Oregon, but it's, it's an exciting time. Uh, and, and I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm more confident than ever in the direction of the program under coach Lanning. Um, I, I don't know if you, if you're ready to transition out of offensive coordinator talk, I think this is kind of a natural bridge towards the, the portal talk. Cause I think that there's some stuff going on here that needs to be discussed. Yeah, let me just touch on real quick. You mentioned the schedule. They did play Houston and Texas this year. Their first game of the year was a, a 37-35 triple overtime loss to, to Houston. Uh, and then they, they lost 41-20 to in Austin. But it, in that game, they put up over 400 yards of offense, and they were tied with Texas at the half. So, uh, as you said, those were their only two losses on the season. And, uh, you know, they put up a lot of points on. And, and from a talent standpoint, yeah, you can say, well, they're playing in a weaker league. But they also have – they have comparable talent to the to the schedule they're playing, right? It's not like it's not like they were, uh, you know, like a Boise State ten years ago dominating a conference that they they lap in talent, right? I mean, they're 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 third in talent composite in their conference, but but they weren't like running away from the rest of the conference in a talent standpoint. So when you're playing comparable talent, the numbers the numbers are still impactful and meaningful. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, and frankly, like if you recruit better players to that level, it means you're doing a good job evaluating talent. So either way, I think it can be spun as a positive. Um, it's just yeah. a matter. It's just a matter of what you're looking for, I guess. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about the portal. Uh, you know, we I think we kind of hinted at this a little bit. 
you know, in our last episode that the portal was going to open and that, you know, Oregon fans should expect to see, you know, 15 to 15 to 20 Oregon players into the portal and, and not to freak out and not to panic and, and that that was needed and expected. And, and we're starting to see that. I think we're, we're closing in on double digits now. Um, I think we can go down the, the list of names here, QB. Um, but, you know, any reason to panic with anything you've seen? No, not at all. Um, in fact, like and this is going to be a contrarian take, I think, relative to um, general discourse. But I look at this all as a really positive thing. Um, the fact that, I mean, here's the deal. Oregon still, as it stands today now with Justin Flo entering the transfer portal that just happened, um, is at 86 scholarship players just with who they have committed. That's without adding a single transfer. Now, obviously, that's, that still has Knicks and Dorless and Sewell, and we don't know what their draft status is. Um, they could all return to school. They could all go pro, which would open up some spots. But, frankly, Oregon's in a position right now where they probably still need to lose somewhere between 10 and 12 more players off the existing roster to clear room for the, uh, the type of transfer portal um, and prep hall. And I, that, I, that might actually be a conservative number. Um, that they're looking to bring in in this class. And so to me, this just – when you're seeing guys – it's one thing when it's like the obvious guys that like, obviously have never really contributed and played are leaving. But when you see guys like Jackson LaDuke, Justin Flo hitting the portal, I think that speaks to a lot of confidence in the staff and their ability to go out um, and replace that with, with premium production-level players um, who can enhance our defense um, and, or, and offense, obviously. But primarily on defense, I think this is – a a good sign. I mean, we saw offers go out this morning. Uh, the first one was to, uh, for a power five player was to Kyrie Jackson um, from Alabama was a starter for them all season um, until he was suspended after the, I can't remember which game, but was suspended. Uh, that is a like instant plug and play player. Like not maybe not quite as good as Christian Gonzalez, but substantially better than probably anyone on the current roster. Uh, and someone that makes us better right away. And I think that there's going to be a lot of guys like that that hit the portal. Um, I think you're going to see Oregon be really aggressive about getting in the game with them. Uh, but that's also going to have to come with guys leaving because you need space. The 85 hard cap for scholarship players still exists. Um, and again, just to reiterate, we're at 86 currently now with Flo entering the portal. So need need a, a, still a pretty substantial amount of attrition to come. I think that there's still plenty of, of uh, room to make. So, uh, but it's going to be really, really fun to monitor here. Uh, I think that you can certainly see the positive that's coming. Yeah, and I think going going to touch on what you were saying about the um, you know the, the incoming transfers. I mean, Oregon didn't get a ton of guys out of the portal last year. I mean, part of that was a new staff getting up to speed and trying to figure out what they had and, and limited time to go recruit the portal, given all of that. So I think that number is going to be much higher last year. But what they did get out of the portal, I mean, they really got quality and they got hit rate, right? And they got guys who were all playing at Power 5 programs, right? I mean, they got Bo Nix. Obviously, we know what he did. They got uh, B- uh, Bucky Irving and Noah Whittingham, who combined for – you know, over 1,600 yards on the year. Uh, Chase Coda had, you know, had 33 catches and 450 yards as the number two receiver on the team. You know, and that was obviously only playing about half the season uh, with the injury. Christian Gonzalez, obviously, lockdown corner is going to be a first or second round draft pick here in you know, this spring. 
And then they got, you know, Riley and Rogers and Taki in the interior D line and all those guys, you know, were, were significant contributors there. So they really identified needs and identified guys to meet those needs, got those guys and those guys all delivered. Yeah, I agree. They did a really good job. I think that their hit rate out of the portal a year ago was extremely high. Um, and I would anticipate that that would be the same this year. Uh, and there's going to be substantially more options and I think more upside in the portal than there was a year ago, which is why it's so important to have room to bring in players that can enhance your program, um, maybe at an accelerated rate than what uh, the traditional high school prospect can. Um, although there's going to be certainly some impact freshmen uh, out of this 2023 class. Yeah, just touching on real quick the guys who are who are going out: quarterback Jay Butterfield, uh, running back Byron Cardwell, Dante Thornton, and Seven McGee at the receiver spots. Uh, offensive lineman Brand Walden, uh, defensive end Braden Swinson, and linebackers just Jackson Duke, Justin Flo. You mentioned those earlier, and then outside linebackers edges Brandon Buckner and Torrell Tillman. Although Tillman, I think, had been playing tight end for Oregon um, all year. So, I mean, uh, not not to name names or pick on on anybody in particular here, but I mean, all of these all of these players are guys that have been in the Oregon program for multiple seasons, and you know, really haven't broken through in any kind of significant way. There's been some you know some spot production from some of them, and um, you know, there's some big names there that people will naturally get freaked out about on the surface level, right? The surface level fans are people that, that really, um, you know, don't follow things as closely as you and I, and, and many of our listeners do, but I think, you know, what you have to realize is that the, the game has changed. This, the same thing is going on at schools everywhere across the country. This isn't, this isn't, uh, this isn't even necessarily a negative for the program, nor for these players, right? I mean, these players have been here two, three, four seasons, they haven't found their spot here. They think they can go somewhere else and find their spot. And that's good. In most cases, in in some cases, it was also just a matter of fit. I mean, um, and and guys maybe wanting to go closer to home, leaving for other reasons. Like I think that Byron Cardwell, for example, is a player that obviously is more than talented enough to play uh, for whatever reason he wasn't. And yes. Yes. um, And and I think Dante Thornton also falls into that, into that category. So, uh, definitely not one. I don't want to disparage the talent level of any of the guys that are leaving. They, all these guys are talented. They were all offered for one reason or another. Uh, but I think with where Oregon's at as a program, what the goals are for the program, um, Oregon's in a position to really capitalize on, on the current um, state of affairs in college football and the instant eligibility and the transfer portal and NIL and, and all of this recruiting and find guys that are frankly like this staff's guys, like, like it, they need to be able to bring in their guys to run their systems. And so that's going to require some patience. It's going to require a lot of turnover of names that we're familiar with. Um, and it's going to be, I mean, I think it's an exciting thing. We get to, we get to learn a lot about all these new kids um, and get to see the improvement and growth of the program. So I'm, I personally am looking forward to it um, and looking at it through a glass half full um, perspective. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at what's happening this year at Oregon, it's it's almost very similar to what Lincoln Riley maybe happened last year under Lincoln Riley at USC, just a year delayed, right? Just a slightly different approach. And, and some of that was due to timing. You know, Lincoln came into USC and, you know, they cleared out a ton of players right off the bat and then brought in a bunch of, a bunch of players from the portal. 
Um, and I think either through a different plan or maybe just through the circumstances of the fact that, you know, landing stuck around Georgia for another month um, and a timing standpoint, you know, it really seemed like that the what's happening at Oregon is, is basically a year delay of that, right? Like, okay, we're going to come in, we're going to, we're going to take a year, see what we got. And then, you know, we're, we're going to see a bigger exodus, you know, in between year one and year two. Or maybe it's just the, the the new normal of the transfer portal era, and and I'm reading too much into that comparison. But I think it's an interesting comparison nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's different in some ways. I mean, timelines were obviously different, right? Like Riley was able to be hired um, a week almost, well, really two weeks earlier because he was hired the day after the Bedlam game um, while Mario didn't even leave until the day after the, the Pac-12 title game. Um, right. So getting a hire made three, actually three weeks later, holy crap. Um and so there was a pretty big balloon of time that was not afforded to this Oregon staff. So it was more about where did we just need to make it work? We need to keep as many guys as possible. So we have 85 scholarship players um, to keep as much of the, cl- the class intact. Whereas now in the first, after a full year of coaching these guys, um, a, a full, their own full recruiting class, um, being able to identify needs fit and, and what, and what is necessary to take this thing to the next level to improve, drastically on defense like what do we need and now it's a matter of okay well these guys aren't going to play they're just there for whatever reason they are not either of caliber or they're they're not a fit for what we want to do um and so we need to we need to find ways to upgrade and to and to improve the program so um now with a full year under their belt experience they're in a position and, and relationship building they're in a position now to to kind of start moving forward uh with with the and commence the rebuild in a more significant manner. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other difference too is, you know, Oregon was a 10 win team, you know, coming, coming off of a, you know, Pac-12 title game appearance and, you know, had a more realistic opportunity probably to, to, Hey, we've got a lot of talent here. Let's run it back. See what we can do. See what we have. Uh, You know, we probably started out with, with higher goals, right. Whereas USC was a four win team and, and Lincoln could come in more realistically and, and clean house right off the bat. So maybe there was a factor there too. But I, you know, I don't want to belabor that comparison too much. I think um, I'm just more interested to really see what happens over the next coming weeks. You know, with Oregon in any more remaining transfers out, and of course the the transfers in when they start clicking in. So, and of course, we'll be covering that. Yeah, hundred percent. I, uh, I I guess rebuild's not the right word. I think it's a it's a major major time like big league tune up though. Um, for it, it, it's time to get this roster where it needs to be to go out and compete for real trophies. Absolutely. Any more thoughts on the portal or the OC hire, or you want to move on and review our picks from last week? Yeah, let's uh, let's move on to our picks. All right. Well, I have some good news. Um, we are both now above five hundred. I went four and two last week in my picks. Uh, lost out, unfortunately, on the Pac twelve title game because uh, I had picked USC. Um, and I also missed on the big 12 title game. I had picked TCU in that one. So I went four and two, but that did put me over 500 on the season. But QB, you were five and one USC was the only game you missed. I know. And I couldn't be happier to miss on that game. So really is this is a win-win. Yeah. You're now 11 games over 500 at 71 and 60 on the year. And I am 66 and 65. We're going to keep this rolling all the way through bowl season. So we'll, uh, we'll keep the picks going as those bowls start coming up here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I do Um, think that we should um, maybe keep them separate and the same 
just because bowl season can be really unpredictable with like how much turnover, whether it be coaches, guys hitting the portal, guys opting out for various reasons. So well, we, we can talk about that as we. Yeah. As we so go. you don't want to give me a chance to catch you. That's what you're saying. Well, no, I mean, I'm just saying, but it is, <laughs> it is, it is different. Like, I, I for sure will not be betting on the vast majority of these bowl games. No, 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 no. We'll pick. Yeah, we'll lock it in. We'll lock in. You won. The season's over. We'll but we'll do the bowl, bowl picks for fun anyway. So yeah, you're right. There's the between everything. It's it's hard to predict bowl games. It always has been, but it's certainly gotten a lot harder of late as well. Uh, let's talk about these conference title games. Uh, you know, it was kind of a weird conference title game weekend, and and that so many of the games really didn't have playoff implications uh, more so than usual but nonetheless i think we still had some some pretty enjoyable games to watch let's start with uh you know friday night in las vegas uh, utah usc you know usc has playoff you know sitting there for the taking um but much like uh 2019 2021 you know it feels like almost every year in the pac-12 the the Pac-12 knocked itself out once again. Uh, Utah f- dominated USC 47-24. Uh, Caleb Williams kind of got hurt early in this one and, and wasn't the same quarterback without his mobility. But even so, Utah just took it to him. Yeah, they did. Um, it was one of those things where early on in this game, there were some big plays, but it was not really from within the structure of the USC offense. It was a lot of stuff where it was a lot of ad lib by Caleb Williams, which frankly has been kind of the theme for the for the USC offense, or I really should call it the Caleb Williams offense um, for the last month and a half. Right. Um, and so when he got banged up, I believe it's a hamstring injury. Their offensive production fell off a cliff. Like they became much easier to defend. Things became much more static um, and they really struggled. And I think it, it first of all showed just how good Caleb Williams has been this year. And I think he's fully deserving of the Heisman as much as it brings me physical pain to admit that Um, because he's been, he's been carrying them pretty much all year. Uh, They, they got away from the run game again. I'm not really sure why Uh, again, they're, they're more, they were more static, a lot easier to defend just based on the lack of mobility and a lot of the same ways that Oregon was with Bo Nix hurt. Right. Um, Although Williams was moving around better than Nick's was uh, for sure relatively, but yeah, I mean, Utah just kind of started teeing off, bringing lots of pressure. They got a lot of sacks, um, but Williams was still making some plays from the pocket. He's really got a lot of arm talent. They've got some talented receivers, but the Utah offense was just having their way. I mean, USC seemed disinterested in tackling uh, for large portions of this game and Utah just physically beat them to a pulp until they, 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 they quit. I mean, they really did. They just kind of mailed it in, um, and and Utah just punished them. But that the, the most impressive part of this game to me was that when when USC started to quit, Utah put their foot down the rest of the way and took the rest of the slack out of the accelerator. I mean, they buried them, and and that yeah. to me is the sign of a well coached team with a strong culture. Um, they had the killer instinct, and and that's something that I think is a massive credit to Kyle Whittingham. So very deserving. Uh, wish Oregon would have been in this game and had the opportunity to do that to USC. But I'm, I'm glad that the fraudulence of, of USC has been exposed at this point. Uh, I'm sure they'll improve this offseason and be a much better team next year. But that team was nowhere near a playoff caliber team, and that was pretty clear for most of the season. Yeah, and, you know, 
early, early, early forecast to next season. I think, you know, the interesting thing is you look at the top four teams in the Pac-12 this year, USC, Utah, Oregon, Washington, you know, I think most most people would can't, would handicap those four being the top four again next season. Uh, you know, USC is bringing back Caleb Williams. Uh, it's been announced that Michael Penix is returning for Washington. You know, obviously we've been talking a lot about Bonex potentially returning for Oregon. Cameron Rising could return for Utah. So it could be all four of those teams back in it with all four of their multi-year starters in place. And, and they all four play each other next year, unlike this year, right? So uh, it's a full round robin among that four. It really could be a fun battle to watch play out next season. Yeah, yeah. And if Cam Rising does leave, Jaron Hall hit the transfer portal, the quarterback from BYU today. Um, and it's widely speculated that he's going to actually be Cam Rising's replacement. So even if it's not Rising, I, I would almost argue that's a talent upgrade. I know that um, he does a lot of really special things um, from just a toughness and leadership standpoint for Utah, but Jaron Hall is a really dynamic player. So I don't think yeah. that Utah is going to be falling too far here, uh, regardless of the quarterback. Um, and I think it's far more likely than not that Knicks returns at this point now that the coordinator – uh, has been announced. Um, I think in the fact, I mean, here's the deal. This is speculation on my part. I don't have any inside information, but the fact that Knicks is playing in what is frankly not a very meaningful bowl game for Oregon, uh, I think signals that he's intending to return. Yeah. I think that's a fair read on it as well. And I- I'm done predicting that Utah is going to have a fall off <laughs> under, under this coaching staff with Kyle Whittingham. So I'm, I'm certainly not going to predict that anymore. I think I made that mistake a couple of years ago once or twice and uh, I'm not going to do it again. Well, and if you're like, here's the deal, like with the transfer portal, a lot of people look at it as a negative for Utah. I think it's a massive positive um, because if you're, let's just say you were like a highly regarded guy with some talent coming out of high school for whatever reason, it didn't work somewhere. Like, is there a coaching staff really nationally that is probably more trustworthy to develop you and get you ready to rock and roll? Like I, they've done a, they've done a fantastic job in the transfer portal uh, plugging guys into their system and, and getting guys to buy in. And so I think the strength of the culture there, um, if a kid has a good attitude and some ability, it's a good place to go in the portal. Um, and it seems that they're willing to play the NIL game a little bit, which is also like encouraging if you're a Utah fan. So um, I've got I've got a ton of admiration for that program. And I, I think that they're going to be pretty dang good for as long as that staff is there. All right. Let's move over to the SEC title game. Uh, we both had Georgia winning this one handily, and they and they did. Uh, the final score there against LSU was fifty to thirty. Uh, it was a little bit more of a blowout early. Uh, you know, kind of got it was over by halftime essentially. So, um, they they put the the finishing touches on their thirteen and zero season and will be the number one seed uh, in the playoffs. But uh, uh, really, not much of a game here. Like you said, when Georgia wants to get up for a team, it's a different team. Yeah, when Georgia when Georgia decides that they want to kill you, they're going to kill you. Um, and I, I'm not sure that there's anybody in the country this year that's built to resist that uh, when they're ready to go. I mean, Jalen Carter is, I like frankly, I think he's the best player in college football right now. Um, and there was some big plays and some and some yellow balls and stuff like that from LSU that resulted in some opportunities, but. Ultimately, Georgia is just way, way outclassing the LSU across the board. Um, and this team, I think, is the proverbial favorite to win the national title. So good, really, really strong first year for uh, for Brian Kelly at LSU, though. They have a lot of talent. I think that they're going to continue to improve and become a good team. 
um, and they're going to recruit really well and make some moves in the portal again this season. I think LSU is going to be a team that we see competing, uh, especially once we get to a 12-team playoff almost annually. So, uh, But, yeah, Georgia just took care of business in this one. Yeah, I'm going to move over to the Big Ten title game. And Michigan, of course, won 43-22. They're going to be the number two seed. But I'm going to give a ton of credit to Purdue in this game. I mean, they lost by 19. But if you look at the stats and you look at the flow of this game, I mean, they competed. They actually outgained Michigan by by 70 yards. They Their problem was they couldn't finish drives. They, they settled for field goals while Michigan was able to get touchdowns. It was a 14-13 game at the half. And then, you know, Purdue tacked on three more field goals in the second half. They just couldn't finish drives, or this might have been a game. But I give them a ton of credit because they were, you know, majorly outclassed coming into this game. No one expected them to be able to compete with Michigan, and they put up a fight. So kudos to them, but obviously Michigan's a better team, and they're rolling ahead. They did. They they were competitive at points in this game, but Michigan was very clearly the the better team by a pretty wide margin. Um, A lot of credit to Aiden O'Connell, Purdue's quarterback, playing with a really heavy heart, uh, the loss of his brother this last week. So really tough circumstances. I hope him and his family um, the best. But Michigan was just a substantially better football team, and um, I think I think they're very clearly number deserving of that number two, um, having gone through the road they've gone through and to remain undefeated and be Big Ten champs. Uh, a, a lot of credit to Jim Harbaugh. I mean, he was dead in the water just two years ago during that COVID season, um, and to, for them to now rattle off two straight Big Ten championships, two straight wins over Ohio State, um, and now this is going to be two straight playoff appearances with a matchup I think that gives them a really good shot to compete for a national title this year. So uh, good, good yeah, for well, Michigan, good for Purdue. Going to be really interested to see uh, if, if Purdue can retain Jeff Brom this off season. Yeah. Is, is he the Brom that's being rumored to Louisville or is that? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, L- yeah. Louisville's his alma mater. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, it, I, we'll talk a little bit about the playoff matchups here in a second. Cause I got some thoughts there, but uh, let's f- go over the big 12, you know, overtime game, you know, second year in a row, the big 12 championship game was decided on the one yard line. Uh, Kansas state uh, knocks off number three TCU. Uh, although TCU stays at number three uh, in the playoff uh, matchup. 31, uh, 28 was the final in this game. It, it's a game you called this one. I mean, Kansas state, I just think Kansas state's a better team. I think they're yeah, a better team. Yeah, I think Kansas State is a better overall team. I do think that uh, TCU is really well coached. There's just the talent at all three levels of this Kansas State defense. I mean, TCU gave them a good fight, came back in this game, uh, won me some money by hitting the over. But it was it was one of those things where Kansas State just has more answers. They Especially now that they've got Howard at quarterback, their pass game is developing. I mean, they lost their best receiver early in this game. Um, and still found ways to make plays vertically downfield. The run game is really strong. Deuce Vaughn's a really dynamic player for them. Uh, yeah, that run. That, sorry, okay. I was just going to say that that touchdown run that Deuce Vaughn had, where he put that cornerback in a blender. I, I felt bad for that kid on the other side, but that was just an unfair matchup in the open field. Yeah, I mean he he's like the the like pan ultimate jitterbug, right? He's a five six hundred and seventy pound guy with just like endless amounts of twitch. But I tell you what, like I I came out of this game just with the most respect for Max Duggan. I mean, yeah, he was competing his ass off, like just gutting it out, making play after play to keep them in this game, got them in a position to to pound it in. And unfortunately, they weren't able to get it in on the one yard line in overtime, or else they might have won this game. 
but Max Duggan played his heart out and just it was like it was it was very similar to that Jake Hayner effort against UCLA last year, where I just like walking watching him walk off the field, you could tell he left it all out there, and I felt like he he had uh, he had really proved to everybody that he is like one of the toughest guys in college football. So uh, all the respect in the world. I think these are both really good teams. Uh, and I, I think that TCU is absolutely deserving of the three seed they earned. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's move over to the ACC. Clemson took care of business, blowing out North Carolina 39-10. to 10. Uh, They pulled DJU pretty early in this game. Uh, Cade Klubnick went on for you know 280 yards on 20 of 24 passing. So DJU has, of course, hit the portal since then. So it'll be, uh, Klubnick, it'll be the Klubnick show in Clemson. 39 to 10 against North Carolina, who, who really didn't put up much of a much of a battle in this one, and, and that'll be Oregon's bowl opponent um, in the Holiday Bowl. Yeah, um, I thought it was funny. This this almost felt to me a little bit like Dabo making like a last ditch effort to the to the playoff committee, to be like, hey, like, look, we don't actually suck. We finally made the quarterback change, and look how good our offense looks all of a sudden. Although they're playing legitimately one of the worst defenses in all of college football. Um, I mean, UNC can't stop and like a nosebleed. They're they're horrid. Um, so yeah, Oregon's gonna be playing UNC. I'm gonna be really interested to see if Drake May is playing for UNC in that game. Uh, a lot of people will be like, well, why he's coming back? Why wouldn't he play in the game? We'll see. We'll see if he's coming back. <laughs> There's been a lot of rumors out there about um, a potential bidding war between uh, Georgia, Alabama, and Ohio State for his services for his junior year. Um, and I'm sure we'll hear more developments about that as, as the the transfer portal cycle kind of continues to pick up steam here uh, into early December. But it's it's going to be a it'll be a tough game if he's playing. He's a very dynamic player, um, and he's got a lot of talent. But like as you could tell, watching this game, they just they just didn't have the dudes to match up with Clemson, and Clemson just kind of owned them. So uh, good for Clemson. I think this is like their eight billionth. Uh, ACC title consecutively. Um, so yeah, it's like eight or nine now. I think the the last one was the 2014 FSU title, the years yeah. they lost in, in the Rose Bowl to Oregon. So that would have been yeah nine seasons ago, eight seasons ago. Yeah. So I mean, for as much as everyone likes to predict the demise of Clemson, it seems that they found a quarterback, and um, they still just continue to rail off ACC titles year after year after year. So. Another good season for them. Uh, I didn't watch a ton of this game. I wasn't really particularly interested. Kind of figured this was going to be the outcome, and it it uh, lived up to what our expectations were. Absolutely. Uh, let's slip over to the from the ACC to the AAC, where Tulane um, avenged its earlier loss to UCF and claimed the American Conference title by a forty-five to twenty-eight victory. And that will put Tulane Green Wave in the Cotton Bowl to face uh, the USC Trojans, who fall to the Cotton after losing their playoff bid against Utah. That is my Tulane Green Wave. Yes, it is. Uh, coached by Willie Fritz, who I think is a fantastic football coach. Um, they just were blowing off explosive plays. UCF had no idea how to stop them. Um, yeah, I mean, th- this was a competitive game at moments, but overall by and large like they just took care of business um and really impressive effort by Tulane I actually think they match up quite well with USC we'll see how healthy Caleb Williams is here in a couple uh when when that game comes up here in about a month but it's uh I think a lot of people are going to look at that and they're just going to see the brand versus the non-brand and they're going to write it off as USC winning but I'm, I'm actually looking forward to betting on Tulane in that game 
Yeah, I think what we've seen in the playoff era is that Group of Five champion in in a New York Six Bowl. I think their record is pretty good. Uh, I'd have well, to go back and research it. Yeah, that team is always very motivated. They're usually playing against a team who thought they should have been in the playoffs and missed out and, and maybe isn't as motivated. I know that one year UCF beat Georgia, I think, and uh, obviously Auburn. You know, Auburn, yeah, it was Auburn, yeah. But uh, we'll see. Uh, like you said, Tulane had 650 yards of offense in this game. Um, they averaged 11 yards of play. Uh, almost 12. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, you're, you're right, 11, yeah. 12 through the air. Uh, so yeah, it, Tulane, it, it's going to be a fun game. I am looking forward to watching that one. I hope, I hope Caleb does play. Cause I think that's going to be more entertaining for fans, but I, you know, I understand if he's hurt, you know, I, want him to play I mean, if he so. doesn't play USC might get blown out. That's very possible. Actually, I, I will say if, if he doesn't play, they will get blown out. I, that, I don't know how much faith I have in Miller Moss. I mean, it's a good offense. It's got some talent around him. I mean, I'll be curious to see if Jordan Addison even plays in this game um, for USC. And that defense hasn't stopped anybody. And this Tulane offense is very explosive. So uh, I'm, I'm interested. That game is one of the, I actually, like, we could talk about this. I'm sure we are. But the New Year's Six. Yeah, let's go right into it. Awesome. We'll start with this game. Yeah. Perfect. So we, are we going to do like a mini preview or do you want to hold Yeah, well, I mean, we'll, we'll obviously going to preview, preview the games in depth. But let's just kind of uh, touch on each game. So let's start with the Cotton Bowl, Tulane, USC. I think we've just kind of already been talking about it, but let's continue. Yeah, I mean, I just to me, like you USC, we saw that there's some quit in them still. Um, they, they're going to have some guys hitting the portal. They're not going to have as much depth. I think that's the one thing. Um, it, it is a near six bowl, but I think that this game has a little bit of a diminished importance to a team like USC, who's clearly still in, in build mode of their program and. They're going to be looking to make some some changes in the offseason via the transfer portal and recruiting, so they're going to be freeing up some space. They're, like We've already seen Raylan Goldforth, who's been playing a ton at linebacker for Utah, um, or, or played a ton at linebacker against Utah, enter the transfer portal for USC. He won't be playing in that game. I, I just think that Tulane is going to be a full unit ready to go. They're going to be excited. This is kind of like the Super Bowl for, for a G5 team. Um, and they're going to uncork a can of whoop ass on USC. Frankly, like I, I just think that they're going to beat them. I, I think it could be right. Let's uh, let's jump over to the Rose Bowl. So Utah makes a return appearance. This time they'll be playing in what is we've talked about the the last uh, traditional Rose Bowl. Um, after this, it will be a playoff game forevermore. So uh, Penn State, Utah in this game. This is a really intriguing matchup. Actually, Penn State only has two losses this year to Michigan and Ohio State. Um, Utah, obviously, we know a lot about. We've been talking about them all year, but I, I'm, I think this is kind of a sneaky, entertaining game. Yeah, I do. This is a horrible matchup for Utah, though. Um, so, Penn State defensively is very, very good. They've got one of the better secondaries in all of college football. They're gonna, they are gonna be. I promise you, perfectly content to play man and bring all kinds of pressures. Manny Diaz is the defensive coordinator. That's kind of what he does. Um, They've got fantastic corner play, and Utah really doesn't have anybody on the outside that scares anyone. Um, Cam Rising is going to be running for his life in this game. The the Utah offensive line is solid, but definitely not tremendous. And, and this Penn State defense is, I would say, pretty easily the most talented that they've seen all year. So that will be interesting to see. Um, Utah or Penn State has a really talented tandem of young running backs, uh, Katron Allen and Nick Singleton. They've got some talent on the outside. Uh, they're returning a really good left tackle. 
I think this is a game that Penn State wins by two scores personally, but you, it's hard to bet against Utah just given how gritty that program is and the way that they they play in these moments. Like they always seem ready and prepared and they have a good plan. But matchup wise, I just I don't see a lot of real winning matchups for Utah in this game. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if you know what impact opt outs or whatnot might have on this game. It feels like a game that might not have as much of that as some of the other big games. Yeah, I don't think it will because a lot of like, for instance, the player for Penn State that you would have expected to opt out has already um, declared that he's returning for next year, uh, and their left tackle, whose name is escaping me currently, um, and I think that Utah players generally have a lot of respect for this game and want to play in it. Uh, so I don't think you'll see players like Clark Phillips opt out early. Uh, otherwise, there's not a lot of other guys on that Utah roster that you would expect to see, lead, like go pro early. Um, so. Overall, I think that these rosters will be at full strength for this game. Yeah, and I think that's good for those fans and fan bases and, and fans in general of college football to see that. Well, let's just um, be honest. Like, the Rose Bowl deserves it, right? Like, it's the, it best does. Game. it's the best bowl game, so. Yeah, and I think it was a little bit diminished last year because of some of the opt-outs that we saw. Not not faulting anyone for doing it, but I think that definitely had a diminishing effect on the Rose Bowl. Um, let's move over to the Orange Bowl, which is truly an Orange Bowl this year. You got number six, Tennessee, uh, and number seven, Clemson. Uh, both teams that wear a lot of orange playing in the Orange Bowl. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting matchup. I would have really favored uh, Tennessee had Hendon Hooker been healthy, but obviously he's out for this game. Uh, they'll be running with Joe Milton, and he, he's a solid player for sure, but uh, not not nearly the level of Hooker. I, I think that this is a game to me, just looking at it early on before I get too deep into it, where I think that the overall talent level of the Clemson defense will be such that they can compete. Um, whereas I think that, that Colt with, with a whole month to prepare Cade Klubnik in this, in this Clemson passing game, are going to be able to find some continuity. Um, I would probably handicap and favor Clemson in this game, in this matchup. But I, I will say um, this Tennessee offensive coaching staff is really talented and Josh Heupel is going to have them ready to go. So I expect this game might be higher scoring, um, just given the matchups. All right. Um, yeah, I don't have a lot of opinion on this one. I kind of think Clemson's probably going to win this one. I, I feel like they are kind of hitting their stride a little bit, you know, silly to say. Uh, and I think with with Klubnik now firmly in place and their defense kind of being what their defense is, I, I think they're going to probably pull off this win. Um, moving over to the Sugar Bowl, we got Alabama uh, and Kansas State in this one. I guess the question for me is who plays for Alabama and who doesn't. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take K State. This is K State's gonna care so yeah. much more about this game, um, but Alabama is absolutely good enough to just come in and win. <laughs> uh, but I just I don't anticipate that Will Anderson or Bryce Young or really a lot of these guys are gonna play. And maybe they do. If they do, uh, my, my tune will change. But I would just expect that these guys will opt out in the same way that a lot of the top-end guys for Ohio State opted out of the Rose Bowl last year. So uh, be interested to see, but definitely yeah, I mean, uh, definitely favor a motivated Kansas State team here. Yeah, the Wildcats haven't played in a New York Six Bowl game since they lost to Oregon in the, in the 2012 Fiesta Bowl. So it's been 10 years since they've played in a game of this magnitude. So I definitely think the care factor will – will fully be uh, on the Kansas State side of the field. 100% agree. 
Um, and then let's get to the playoffs then. So we talked a little bit about this. Uh, let's talk, start with uh, TCU Michigan. Um, I, I, I think Michigan kind of benefited here in in the matchups. Um, you know, and I think if you're Georgia, you kind of going to be going like he's like we're number one, and we have to play Ohio State. And and I don't want to be too disparaging of TCU, but you know, you just look at talent factor alone. I mean, Ohio State and TCU both lost one game. Um, Ohio State lost a game to Michigan. They did get blown out. Uh, TCU lost a close game in against Kansas State. But if it does feel like you know Michigan got a little bit of uh, a little bit of bracket benefit here compared to Georgia. Um, but uh, that said, TCU's going to put up a fight. Um, who, do you, who do you like in this one? Uh, I like Michigan. I just think that Michigan has the, the overall talent advantage. And I think that um, based on the way that this game is going to play from a pace standpoint, Michigan's got a pretty definitive advantage offensively, just controlling the line of scrimmage, controlling the clock, being able to dictate tempo a little bit more. Um, I, it's going to be uh, it's going to be really fun fun to watch this one, though, because TCU is plucky and they're going to play hard. And they have a really, really good offensive staff with uh, Garrett Riley um, and and Sonny Dykes, and so they're going to have some stuff ready to go. And I think that you can generate explosive plays through the air against this this Michigan defense. Uh, and if anyone's going to be able to do it, TCU has a ton of speed on the outside. So uh, I think it'll be competitive, but I would I would probably favor Michigan here by like probably a touchdown. Yeah, I, I think. I think it's just going to be a talent situation at this point, and I think Michigan's going to win this one without too much drama, drama I guess, at the end. Uh, so let's go over to the Peach Bowl. Georgia will be making their third appearance in Atlanta at Mercedes-Benz Stadium this season. They're home not so far away from home to play the Ohio State Buckeyes, who, who sat home and watched uh, USC lose and paved the way for them to make it into this game. And like I said, I think I think Georgia's got to be. I mean, I don't think Georgia cares that much, and they're not going to look at it as as anything other than than motivation. But it does feel like they they kind of got a little bit hurt by the by the bracket here, having to play Ohio State instead of TCU. I mean, Ohio State's like the only team in. I mean, like you, they they really wanted to play USC. I mean, they would have absolutely just opened a can on on USC. But Ohio State's one of those teams where they are dangerous in the sense, in, in the same way that they were in 2014, where they have so much talent and they have a really good quarterback and a really good offensive coach, um, and and just unique athletes on the outside at receiver that give them an opportunity to just show up and play a hell of a game and beat anybody. Right. Um, and so they're they're certainly dangerous. I think that Georgia's definitively a better team. I think they're better coached. I think they're Georgia has the ability to play football at a physical level that nobody else can match. Uh, players like Jalen Carter are uniquely like they're just, they're, they're unicorns in a lot of way. Um, in, in a lot of ways, I apologize, but yeah, I, I, I like Georgia in this game. I like Georgia to win probably by two scores, but it wouldn't surprise me the least, but if, if Ohio state shows up and just plays the game of their lives and wins, um, and that's why this is a tough matchup. It's it's a dangerous team. Uh, I don't think I would take Ohio State to win the playoff, but I could see them winning a playoff game. Uh, but I do think that they're playing against definitively the most talented, well-coached, and prepared team in all of college football this year in Georgia. Yeah. Wouldn't it be wild if we ended up with a Ohio State-Michigan rematch for the title? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we are going to get a rematch of that Michigan-Georgia game from last year. And frankly, I think – 
Georgia's just a lot better at playing that style than Michigan is. Yeah, that's absolutely what I would pick as well. All right, let's uh, let's flip over to the Pac-12 Bowl slate real quick. Uh, so let's start with the LA Bowl. The uh, Washington State Cougars will be playing in the Jimmy Kimmel LA Bowl against the Mac. Uh, I'm sorry, not Mac. The Mountain West champion Fresno State Bulldogs. I probably. <laughs> I don't know. You go first. Yeah, I. I mean, uh, I. It's. I don't know. I mean, Fresno State's a good football team. They're well coached. Uh, obviously, they beat Boise in Boise to win the MAC title this past week or the Mountain West title this past weekend. So, you know, they're going to come again. Whenever you play the G five versus Power five thing, the the motivational factor is always something that has to be considered, right? Because here you are. It's the it's the Mountain West champion going up against the seventh place team in the Pac twelve, and you know, Washington State's got. They did a lot of nice things this year. They have a good defense. You know, they have some weapons. They can do some things. But they're still the seventh place, you know, Pac-12 team. They went four and five in conference. And and Fresno State's a team that won, you know, nine games and won their conference. So If Jay Kaner plays, I'm taking Fresno. Yeah, nine and four they ended up this year. Yeah, um, I, I don't think Cameron Ward's any good at all. <laughs> like, he's, he's a good <laughs> athlete. About him. He occasionally will luck himself into an explosive play through the air. Um, I don't think he's accurate. I don't think he's decisive. I think he's very lax days going slow through his reads. I, I'm taking Fresno in this game if, if Hainer plays. I just think that players like Hainer and Cropper um, are going to be good enough to take advantage of the matchups that we've discussed, that we saw Washington take advantage of, that Oregon was able to take advantage of in the passing game. And uh, I, I think that the Fresno State defense is competent enough to slow down Washington State offensively. All right, I'm with that. Let's move over uh, the Tiger, the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl in El Paso, the number six place, uh, number six matchup of the Pac-12 UCLA Bruins taking on the Pitt Panthers. Pitt's eight and four on the season. UCLA's nine and three. Uh, Pittsburgh ha- did win their last four games of the season, I believe, or was that their first four? Uh, last four. So, what do you think on this one? Um, I like Pitt. Well, actually, no, I don't like Pitt. Not anymore. They, they don't have a quarterback. So uh, if DTR plays, I like – this is the thing. All these games, these low-level bowl games, who like plays? Is, who, is player X playing? Yeah. <laughs> so whoever's starting quarterback plays, I'm going to favor. So in this case, it'll be UCLA. Um, although I do think that Pitt has a definitive advantage at both line of scrimmage in the, scrimmages in this game. Um, and that might be enough to just flat out outright win. But if DTR is playing and they're invested, I'll take UCLA. Yeah, it'd be nice nice to see that too. I mean, DTR seems like the type of guy that might play this game, um, given his his long term, you know, tenure there at UCLA and and whatnot. So we'll see we'll see what happens there. Uh, let's move over to the Las Vegas Bowl. This will be the Oregon State Beavers playing the six and six Florida Gators. Uh, Anthony Richardson has already announced he's he's going to the draft, uh, so I assume that means he's not playing in this game. As, Either. And his backup was arrested for child pornography. So who is the Florida quarterback in this game? We don't know. Um, I don't – this must be a typo. I was told all week by Oregon State fans that they absolutely would get a higher bowl placement than Oregon um, and be in this game, even though it made zero logical sense given they had a worse conference record. Um, but here we are. Um, Oregon State playing uh, Florida – 
I think that because Billy Napier is in year one, there's going to be more importance. I think that Florida is going to be more ready to play than they traditionally would be in a, in a lower level bowl like this against Oregon State. Uh, and I think it's actually a pretty good matchup for them. They're going to be able to run the ball in Oregon State. Um, I I don't know who the quarterback is that keeps them honest, but matchup wise, is throwing the ball really what you want to do against Oregon State? Just given that Florida doesn't have a ton of talent uh, at the pass catching positions at current. I, I think that Florida could win this game. It wouldn't surprise me if Oregon State pulled it out, but I don't think that a one-dimensional Oregon State physically matches up all that well with, with a Florida defense that has some ability. Yeah, obviously a long, long time ago, but this team did beat Utah in the opening week of the season. Of course, that was the game down in Florida at home. But, you know, I I really thought the Beavers were going to come out last bowl game and and really be ready to play and they got absolutely curb stomped by utah state in their bowl game last year so uh, again i think oregon state is going to be motivated i think jonathan smith's going to have them motivated to try to get to 10 wins on the season but yeah my initial gut kind of leans with florida as well but uh we'll see we'll see what happens there um you want to talk next about the oregon north carolina matchup so 15 yeah, Oregon I'm, playing North Carolina in the Holiday Bowl down in San Diego. We talked about it a little bit. Nix is already committed to playing in this game, which is great news for Oregon because if he didn't, I don't know who does. Um, Oregon Oregon's going to be looking pretty strong defend, uh, offensively in this game, going to be pretty much at full capacity. Uh, it doesn't sound like anybody is opting out of the bowl game, which is actually really cool. Um, I think that says a lot about the relationships that have been built with the staff. Um, but – defensively with well, Christian Gonzalez isn't playing. That's a problem. Um, especially if UNC <laughs> offensively is operating at full capacity. I think this is going to be a shootout. Uh, I don't see us getting a lot of stops against Drake may uh, if he's cooking at full steam, but here's the deal. I, I think that UNC is arguably the worst coach power five team right now. Um, I, I don't think Mac Brown's very good. I, I really don't think Gene Chizik is any good. And I think Phil Longo is extremely overrated and has been, uh, largely covered up by the fact that Drake May is just a tremendous talent. So if if guys like Josh Downs and Drake May aren't playing in this game, I think Oregon wins in a blowout. Um, otherwise, I think this is going to be a, actually one of the more fun games to watch, just given the amount of offense I anticipate. So if Drake May and everybody are playing, then we're taking the over. Yo, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> neither one of these defenses, especially with no Christian Gonzalez, is finding a lot of stops. Uh, all right, one more game to cover. The Alamo Bowl has a, a number 12 Washington hosting number 20, well, not hosting, but uh, playing number 12, 20 Texas in the Alamo Bowl. This one this one could be good. Texas, I think, is the early favorite in the betting lines. Yeah, so Bijan Robinson, I don't believe, is playing in this game, but uh, don't be fooled. Roshan Johnson, tremendous back. Uh, Keelan Robinson, really explosive player out of the backfield, too. They're going to be just fine at running back in this game, even without Bijan. Obviously, that's a drop-off. But um, Texas well, is in a unique position where they're not going to be missing a lot of guys to opt-outs in this game. Um, and I think it's a pretty important game for Sark to build momentum going into the offseason, going into next year. This is a great opportunity for Quinn Ewers to get right. Uh, this Washington defense stinks. And this Texas offense is uh, like they've got dudes everywhere. Um so Jatavian Sanders at tight end, Xavier Worthy at receiver, uh, Whittington at receiver, the ba- the backs we talked about, Quinn Ewers, obviously Kelvin Banks in the offensive line is a player we're familiar with. I would expect to see even more true freshmen playing in this game, uh, whether it's Campbell at guard, 
uh, potentially even Williams a tackle. This is going to be a game where I think that Texas gets whatever the hell they want offensively. I know Sark's going to have them with a good plan. There's a lot of familiarity between universities here with Steve Sark obviously being a former Washington coach. Uh, so is Pete Kwiatkowski, the defensive coordinator. And I'm actually really intrigued to see, which has been a greatly improved Texas defense this year, how it matches up with that like very deep safety bend but don't break system that that quit plays against this Kalen DeBoer offense and Mike Penix and the receivers um, who have been fantastic. I don't know if we can expect Romo Dunes in this game, uh, but it's not like uh, Polk and, and, and Millen and some of the other receivers haven't been very good for Washington. I favor Texas in this game. I think they're a far better overall team. I, I mean, on their best day, Texas was the best team in the Big 12 this year. Unfortunately, they only played their best about half the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they didn't have a healthy – they obviously weren't healthy. They had, at one point didn't have their starting quarterback. But uh, this is going to be a fun game. I'm actually really looking forward to this game. Yeah, you'd have to think that their their offensive line and their running backs and their OC is kind of salivating at the notion of, you know, it's watching the way Washington was a, was able to get run on, you know, by any team that really dedicated themselves to the run. I mean, Oregon Oregon in that game obviously ran for over 300 yards and, and got whatever they wanted on the ground for the most part. And and that was a theme um, at, at at times throughout the season when when teams were but games with Washington were still competitive, right? And we didn't see a lot of teams take advantage of it because, A, there weren't that many teams on, on Washington's schedule that were set up to to dominate in the run game. And, B, you know, a lot of times those teams were behind by multiple scores and really couldn't lean on the run game. I think you saw UCLA run the ball very well on Washington, and you saw Oregon do it in a dominant fashion as well. And I think Texas has got to be looking at that as – as a way to to really dominate this game on, on that line of scrimmage and yeah, make, I mean, make Washington stop them. If Xavier Worthy is playing, Xavier Worthy can run by anybody in this Washington secondary on any play. Um, and so I think that, like we saw it with Thorne, we saw it with Franklin, there's going to be lots of opportunities at explosives, and they're going to be able to have the efficiency run game. So this is a game that has to be a shootout for Washington to win. Um, and I think that Texas is pretty competent defensively. So it'll be really interesting to see how that matchup plays out. Yeah, it'll be a fun one. I, I'm looking forward to watching this one as well. And obviously, Michael Penix will be playing. I assume he did announce he's returning to Washington for next season. So well, it'll be interesting to see. You know, is Roma Dunsey playing? There's a couple of the other. You know, they have some offensive linemen who are who are probably moving on to the NFL. They got some edge players who are probably moving on to the NFL. I don't have any reason to believe they wouldn't play, but so, certainly something to keep an eye on for Washington. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they need to be at full strength because um, I think Texas will be outside of Robinson. So. All right, QB, anything else before we uh, call this one good? I know we'll be chatting with Hithliday in a couple days here, and that will release on Thursday for our fans I mean, of the Hithliday and QB show. Yeah, with the portal, with everything else that's coming up, I mean, there's going to be a lot of episodes of the show, possibly some emergency episodes, depending on like what happens. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, this is – for what was possibly a, a disappointing end of the season, you have a good bowl game against a good opponent in a beautiful setting down in San Diego. Um, you have a you have a full staff now with an offensive coordinator, so there's that uncertainty is now gone. Now it's time to go out and build, like start chopping wood if you're the staff, close on the recruiting trail, make some big additions in the transfer portal, um, and let's see what this team what, what they could put together for next year because I think that Oregon uh, is going to have the pieces to go make a run at a Pac-12 title. Well said. 
Excellent, guys. Well, make sure to follow the show at QB11Show on Twitter. Uh, follow myself at QB11SD. Follow Doug at DouglasTS. Um, if anyone has any questions, if they have any ideas for off-season content that you guys would like to see, uh, if you guys would like us to go more in-depth on maybe some of the stuff that uh, Coach Stein is going to be bringing to the Oregon offense, uh, feel free to DM us or DM the show account at any point. Our DMs are both open. Uh, we're, we're looking for all ideas. We have a bunch of ideas ourselves for content coming up here, but uh, we, we want to engage the listener as much as possible. It's been awesome to interact with you guys on Twitter and spaces on the message boards. I um, mean, we want to expand on that as much as possible. So feel free to reach out. We both love to chat. We both love talking Oregon football. Um, I hope you guys all have a wonderful week and we'll talk to you on Thursday.